You might not have the lifestyles of the rich and famous, but you can certainly invest like them. This is Retirement Revealed, where Jeremy Kyle and his guests guide you towards making smarter retirement, investment, and tax planning decisions. Welcome to Retirement Revealed. I'm your host, Jeremy Kyle, and we're here to turn your retirement savings into retirement income. Today, we're talking with Ben Frazier about how to invest like a billionaire. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. Looking forward to chatting. Yeah, same here. I uh, was very uh, pleased to, to make your acquaintance over email. Uh, love listening to your podcast. So we're going to talk about all that. But before we get there, uh, tell us a bit more about yourself and about your company, the Aspen Funds. Yeah, sure. So I'm the chief investment officer of Aspen Funds and Aspen Funds. Uh, we're a little bit different than a lot of maybe folks that your listeners are familiar with in that we operate kind of in the private alternative world of you know real estate investing, uh, other types of alternatives. But that's really what I do. I, you know, my background is in banking as a commercial banker, lender, underwriter for many years and uh, kind of transitioned into the private equity world about six, seven years ago and uh, been doing that ever since. Awesome. And I see on your website, there's at least one other person with the same last name. Is that a connection or a coincidence? Yeah, more, more than a coincidence. Uh, he's actually my father. So okay. one, of, uh, one of our co-founders is my father. So I joined them about seven years ago and I've uh, been going about 11 years now. Awesome. And of course, you started the podcast, which is how we got connected, how to invest like a billionaire. Tell us a little bit about the podcast and then especially how do you invest like a billionaire? Yeah, great. So yeah, our, our podcast, you know, probably similar to you, it's just a lot of people have questions that they feel they don't have the answers to, they you know, aren't able to figure these things out for themselves. And so really just providing uh, helpful you know, tools for people to understand how to grow their wealth. And one of the things we found just in working with our investors is most people spend so much time growing their net worth, right? Accumulating and, you know, growing their careers and trying to increase their, their salaries, but very little time on actually maximizing growing and compounding what they do have. Right. And, and, you know, if you understand the power of compounding, as I know you do very, very well, that's such a powerful factor in, in really setting yourself up for a great retirement in the future and how it kind of ties into how the ultra wealthy invest. We started doing a lot of research several years ago just on the ultra wealthy investors, right? These are the family offices of the world. So the families that, you know, have nine figures of net worth and they have a whole team around them that are helping their investment portfolios, uh, the, the pensions, endowments, and, you know, the billionaires of the world, they, they invest, you know, very differently than kind of the average, we'll say just retail investor, you know, and a lot of the things they do, maybe we can't replicate at our smaller level, but there are some concept strategies that they do that we try to apply at a, from a portfolio standpoint to really help maximize you know, overall you know, risk and return uh, to investors. Um, and the biggest difference, what we found is generally allocations to you know, private alternative investments, right? And this is a world that means a lot of different things. We can dive into what that actually entails, but you know, Yale Endowment is one of the kind of pioneers of this model where several decades ago, they started allocating a pretty large percentages into these kind of private real estate, private equity investments, and ended up outperforming all their peers for many, many decades. And a lot of the endowments now use that model, but it's also been replicated by other bigger uh, investment groups. You know, Some of their data we've found is through Tiger 21, which is 
an amalgamation of investors that have at least $20 million of net worth or greater. And you know they do quarterly publishing of the portfolios on an average basis. And just looking at what are, what are these ultra wealthy investors doing? How are they positioning? What are they um, investing in? And generally it's larger you know, percentages into these private investments. And so obviously there's a lot to unpack there, but I'll kind of t- uh, throw it back to you and yeah, there's a lot there, especially that word private, and we're going to talk about that, I believe. Also, too, you might be listening to this thinking, well, billionaires, Yale Endowment, how does this affect me You know, in any way? I'm not even close to that. So I, I assume that's kind of what um, you talk about, how you could invest in, in ways that are similar to how the the endowments and the, the billionaires invest privately. But I want to give a little bit of pushback. I think you can handle it uh, first. Yeah, please do. it there. Uh, the first one, and I guess it's con- it's really together. It's that Warren Buffett says, just go buy the S and P 500. And I'm reading today in the Wall Street Journal that the state of Nevada, their endowment or pension plan, is a top three endowment in terms of returns, and they have two people working there investing in index funds. So I guess why would you bother not buying the S and P? Why would you bother not buying uh, index funds? Yeah, no, great, great point, right? And alternatives are not for everybody. I mean, just like you, know, you got to be able to stomach some ups and downs in, in the public markets. There's there's some big downsides to private markets, right? And, and the, the the two biggest ones are transparency and illiquidity, right? So th- those are the, the two biggest things that you got to be aware of when you're going into this whole world. But on average, I mean, there's, there's lots of different data. I want to get all into that. But the private markets give you a few different things. One, it generally gives you lower volatility. Right, so if you're concerned about volatility or just variance of return, you know the ups and downs. A lot of times, you can get lower volatility going into private, and then two, you get actually you know true diversification to where a lot of times, you know, like last year, I think it was the 60/40 portfolio had its worst performance in the past hundred years, and a lot of factors were going on, especially you know with uh, interest rates that we're seeing, but correlations over over time have gone closer to one you know between stocks bonds and even publicly traded REITs to where you're not getting as much true diversification as you may have gotten a couple of decades ago and so those are generally the two big reasons uh, why people you know have allocations into these other asset classes yeah that makes a lot of sense for some people they're almost looking more to keep their fortune instead of making their fortune or maybe they just have a higher interest around it and so they want to explore uh, some of these things. And of course, there's all kinds of ways you can invest. And I don't know if there's a top three, top four, top two, but let's just try to dive into a little deeper on what you think might be the top three or four ways for somebody to explore that's more in the private world, the alternative world, kind of the invest like a billionaire world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's just like anything when you're kind of getting started, you want to go slow and you want to just take your time and educate yourself. Um but one of the cool things, and you kind of alluded to it before, is you know, well, I can't be like a billionaire because I don't have the resources. And there are certain things that we can't do that billionaires do, right? Like buy yachts and other things. But the there's kind of a fundamental change in regulation that happened in 2012 with the Jobs Act that uh, really changed the game for these types of investments to where they allowed these sponsors of you know private real estate, for example, to be able to market their deals and share with a broader set of audience without having to be publicly registered and do an IPO, right? And so it kind of lowered the barrier of entry to be able to 
advertise and get your uh, deal in front of more people. Um, but you know, with that also comes some of the things you got to watch out for, watching out for bad actors, watching out for Ponzi schemes. But those really are kind of few and far between. And one of the cool things with the kind of changing regulations is it really allows what I'll call the DIY investor that wants to be a little more involved in you know, growing and managing their wealth. They can really pick and choose. There's a lot of platforms out there. You can go and scroll through and, and evaluate different offerings. Um, there's like crowdfunding you know, websites. So you can you know, invest $500 into a, a private real estate uh, fund. Um, but then, you know, what I would say is, you know, generally as you kind of want to invest more and more into these asset classes, getting in communities or with advisors or other resources that can help point you in the right direction and help you understand the key you know, factors of due diligence, the things you should be watching out for. Um, and a lot of times, even a lot of like bigger operators, bigger sponsors that are doing bigger real estate deals will sell their um, their deals through different broker dealer networks and other things that they can, you know, have access to like a Blackstone or you know, a company like that. So there's there's a whole variety. It's it's hard to say there's one best place to start, but it really probably comes down to what's your comfort level and understanding you know, how to evaluate certain investment opportunities, how to do some basic due diligence and, you know, really how much you want to take control over some of the uh, investment decisions yourself versus, you know, outsource some of that. Yeah, you've definitely mentioned uh, real estate as an option. I think you've alluded to private credit. Let's try to pick one more. Let's get, let's get the three we can really look at. So private real estate, private credit, would you say there's maybe an, another one? That yeah, the, the other big one that a lot of the ultra wealth investing is private equity, right? Okay. So this like traditional private equity. Yeah. I like it. Good. Well, let's talk about, uh, what, before we talk about how to invest, let's talk about maybe who should invest. And part of the who, even though, you mentioned how the government relaxed some rules around advertising is who can invest. So you mm -hmm. might be thinking, is this possible for me? I believe most of these are uh, related to a term called accredited investor. Can you just tell us more what that means, the the, the word or yeah. term accredited sure. investor? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, with the expansion of the rules to where, you know, operators could advertise their deals, they set a standard of well, you can do that, but the people that can invest in these, they need to have the financial wherewithal to be able to make these decisions, or at least the the knowledge of these types of investments, uh, basic knowledge. And so they created a, a category called accredited investors. It's actually been around for a long time, but they use that as the metric. And what that basically means is you either make over $200,000 as a single income earner or $300,000 jointly, or you have $1 million of net worth excluding your personal residence. So there's no test you have to take, at least not yet. They're actually considering potentially making a test for people that don't meet those financial requirements to be able to uh, take a written test and pass it. Um, but right now, it's just you are, you aren't. It's no no, no uh, test needed. And if you are, then you kind of are able to invest in these types of things. And even if you're not, you know, if you're you're kind of on your way, you're building up your net worth, and you want to kind of dip your toe and explore a lot of the crowdfunding websites actually allow you to be non-accredited. Um, so there's a whole different regulation set called Regulation A. And uh, there's a little bit more reporting required on the operator uh, that they have to do. It's almost like a mini IPO in one sense. And so you can invest in the, those types. And a lot of times for very low minimums, so $500, for example, and just get started. Yeah, and I think what you're really talking about is, uh, and you use a term like due diligence, education, 
these are different than your standard stock and bond mutual fund index. So I think part of why they said this accredited investor is theoretically, if you have more income, more wealth, maybe you've gotten there because of a higher knowledge of financial matters and you've got the higher ability to go and investigate these different areas. A friend of mine, uh, Steve Sandusky did a series with a group called Case. I don't know if you've heard of Case CAIS. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So he did a series of kind of educational podcasts. I think I'm going to link to those in the show notes that if you're wanting to learn more about uh, these different worlds out there, different investments, the the private real estate, private credit, private equity, uh, things like that, we'll have a a link to there. Uh, And we can't uh, educate everyone in the next five minutes, but we can certainly (laughs) talk about uh, maybe just private real estate. What are some of the high level ways that you could get into private real estate? What are the different uh, types, especially, and I think your your fund's got some really deep knowledge of it. It's just the difference between maybe owning the real estate equity or owning the real estate kind of a uh, debt, because that's a, a way yeah. to invest as well too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at a very high level, you know, a lot of people think, oh, I want to invest in real estate, right? They see bigger pockets or they have a friend that owns some rentals. So most people just think, well, I got to go buy some rentals in, you know, in this, you know, almost slum areas and get some cash flow. And that's not something I've never done, never planned to do because I'm, you know, I'm not very handy. I don't really want to get calls at midnight, you know, when the toilet breaks. But what's interesting, a lot of people don't realize that these private real estate offerings a lot of times will pool together investor capital sometimes large amounts of capital to go and invest in whatever the strategy is. So a very common strategy is going and investing in apartment buildings, right? So these are multifamily apartments and you can go buy, you know, large apartment buildings in great metro areas that are growing and you can, you know, help create value in those apartments by renovating units and, you know, adding amenities, other things that you can do to increase the value of that property. And then by doing that, you can be a part owner in in that apartment building, right? And you don't have to do any of the work. You get the kind of benefits of it being being passive. And so that's one of the cool things is is it really opens up the opportunity set for, well, what do you want to invest in? You know, we're very bullish right now on industrial real estate for a lot of reasons. Uh, We still do like multifamily, um, but there are some challenges and headwinds in that asset class for sure. And um, so there's a lot, lot of cool things you can kind of pick and choose uh, when you're investing in, in the kind of private world. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's really interesting. And that private real estate, yeah, you generally think what you said, you go buy a duplex, but there's a lot of ways you can do that where you're, you're separating your own kind of working ability from the, uh, the financial ability. And, uh, that's hopefully, and I, I doubt the uh, billionaires going out and, uh, fixing locks and stuff at, uh, 2 AM. So if you, I suppose if you're trying to invest like a billionaire, uh, one way to do that is to, um, offload kind of the property management piece of it and just really choose the investment piece on there. Although when it comes to real estate, usually there's some sort of mortgage on that. And it's somewhat, so I guess, tell me about the private credit because um, I'm mm-hmm. trying to segue into the, the credit yeah, side. Perfect. That seems to be a popular thing uh, that I'm reading you know, online or newspapers that uh, especially with bonds going down in value in 2022, that the interest in private credit. What's what's really the difference between private credit and well public credit? 
Yeah, exactly. Great, great question. Great segue. You know, private credit is again, one of those blanket terms that can mean a lot of different things as it relates to real estate. It's generally considered like bridge financing or basically it's more expensive than a bank, but it's kind of filling this like gap where the market used to be at this point, but now it's at this point, right? So right now we're in a very unique cycle. It's you know credit tightening. So banks, lenders are pulling back. They're not making new loans. They're going to be a lot more risk averse. So they're reducing the amount of loan that they'll give on the same property they were a year or two years ago. And so what's happened is, you know, uh, credit is really the lifeblood of our economy, right? We 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 buy so much on credit, and it helps GDP growth because we're using those loans to go and invest in new manufacturing or to go buy a building to hire employees, you know, for Amazon. And so there's a lot of things that we rely on for that for that debt. But right now, there's just a bigger gap that is not being filled by the traditional financial systems. And so private credit is really coming in. These are non-bank you know, lenders that are coming in and helping fill that gap. And so we do that on the residential side. We actually buy um, what's called re-performing mortgages from banks and hedge funds on single family properties. And we become a lender and we help people, you know, work out their, their deals and stay in their homes and uh, make their payments. Um, there's other types of private credit that are, uh, you know, lending to uh, businesses. So this is not even backed by real estate, but it's, you know, uh, it's called more merchant capital or um, you know, business lines of credit where they're trying to grow. They don't want to take on equity because that's expensive. They have to give up ownership, but they can take on a little bit of debt to continue to scale up. That's that's very interesting. And so th- there's a lot of different elements within that whole realm of what type it is. You know, what, one thing I always say is people get Allured by, hey, we're offering a twelve percent, you know, rate of preferred rate of return or promissory note at twelve percent, and well, it's a great return. You always got to adjust it by what's the risk you're taking, right? And as, mm-hmm. as someone I think you, from your background would, would definitely agree with me that not all returns are created equal, right? And so the private credit space is no different. If you think credit, you think automatically less risk, but there's a lot of variance between what risk you're taking, even within that realm of unsecured versus, you know, secured by the, by the business assets versus secured by real estate versus, you know, secured by commercial real estate. So there's a lot of different levels of that, but as, as a whole, I think there's a lot of interest in it because uh, there's a big opportunity in the market right now where these lenders are coming in and filling a need that's very, very needed, but is not being currently filled by traditional financial uh, institutions. It's Jeremy Kyle here, and I know you're listening to the Retirement Reveal Podcast because you want to learn more about making great retirement decisions. I've created a free video course for you to do just that. Head over to 5stepretirementplan.com and sign up to receive this video training right in your email inbox. We broke down our 5-step retirement plan into bite-sized videos so you can get started on the retirement, investment, and tax planning you need to create a consistent retirement income. Go to 5stepretirementplan.com Use the number or spell it out. You'll get there either way. Fivestepretirementplan.com. Thanks for listening. And now for the rest of the show. Yeah, I like your question. Real quick question of what's the risk? Uh, and something you said uh, a little quickly there was uh, help the borrowers work out their mortgage, which means that there's maybe a problem going on yep. with them and the mortgage. Another term is maybe distressed debt where there's something going on there. And of yep. course, you ask yourself, what's the risk? And you felt the risk was worth uh, the return. So that's why I see maybe some um, I don't know, promotions. And I'm obviously not uh, suggesting you do this in any ways, because you're, you're clearly talking about 
what's the risk what's the return what's the diversification and things along there where um, when you see an above normal rate, that's because there's an above normal risk, right? And, and just mm-hmm. working that out uh, yourself and uh, learning what the risk is and if it's worth it uh, for you. So that's something to keep in mind where uh, I just see that like, oh, 8%, there you go. Well, 8% is definitely above guaranteed these days, right? That's not a uh, right. uh, roughly normal uh, interest rate. So there's something different that could be worthwhile to look at. Another thing I see with the private credit, and this is uh, maybe just a quick sidebar. We'll see how uh, where it goes. But uh, a lot of times I'm seeing, uh, especially online uh, in the, the TikTok world of all places, about how uh, you should invest in life insurance as a retirement plan because it's just like what the, um, the life insurance companies do. They go out and get private credits and you can kind of be this way. So tell, tell me if you've run across the idea of life insurance retirement planning and just, just your quick take on that. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm no expert. So, you know, definitely got to take that into consideration in my answer. But um, yeah, I mean, they're everywhere. You know, life insurance, you know, I have mixed feelings because life insurance, it's a great way to uh, pay commissions to your to your broker. Um, but I actually, actually do have one of those policies as high cash value policy. The way it was sold to me, I, I didn't really like it because it was like, hey, this is going to be this big income generator. And you know, it's going to grow at this rate, all this kind of stuff. And you have this guaranteed money you can always take back. But the problem is if you take like all the premiums that I'm paying, I just put that in the S&P or put it into some real estate, I would mm-hmm. get a way higher return, right? So you can't really view it as like an investment vehicle. I view it as one of my liquidity sources, right? Mm-hmm. So I have some lines of credit, one of them being this cash secured, you know, life insurance to where it is nice, right? I do use that. If there's an opportunity I want to invest in, I can pull some cash out and it's a pretty low interest rate relatively. It doesn't really adjust to, to normal interest rate movements. So I think it's still 4% or 4.5%. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it's an oversold product. I think, you know, there's there's no one, you know, magic investment vehicle. I think it it can serve some purpose, but you got to understand what the purpose is and how to use it. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of, I think, misleading information out there on them for sure. Yeah, I like what you said. There's no one uh, like magic bullet for for investments, and that's uh, the downside with any investments. Even if it's the uh, the the S and P 500 that Warren Buffett was talking about, we started off saying there's no magic bullet there either. Uh, and I think that's uh, what you said. How you happen to be using it at this point in time is it's an alternative to maybe your cash accounts or an alternative to lines of credits. And oftentimes, it's either pitched or thought of as an alternative to uh, the S&P 500 or alternative to stock investing. And really just when you dig into it, looking at the background of what the life insurance company owns, which is a lot of this private credit. Private yeah. credit is, uh, is is bonds, not not stocks. And really viewing these life insurance uh, policies and all, as an alternative to bonds or alternative to, to CDs or, or things like that is a, is a better way to, to view it. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, if you just think about the simple math, they, you know, the life insurance companies have to go earn a higher rate of return than they're paying you, which means right. there's a higher rate of return that you could be getting yourself, right? If you didn't go through that vehicle. So yeah, it, it, whenever there's something that seems too good to be true, obviously mm-hmm. it probably is. <laughs> yeah. Which is interesting because these, uh, and, and Dowens you mentioned earlier, and even the life insurance companies, they are quite often invested in private yep. credit, private real estate. And the third one we identified, kind of a top three to explore, or maybe the most um, kind of deals that are out there is is the private equity. 
Uh, and oddly enough, when I when I look at kind of life insurance balance sheets, 2%, 5%, that's maybe about how far they go into the private equity world. Uh, so again, it's not here's where you put all your money. Uh, but just tell us more. What what does private equity look like? How is it different than buying a, a stock on the market? Yeah, sure. So, you know, private equity versus public equity, you know, the simple difference is it's not publicly traded generally. These are uh, usually investment firms that will go pool capital together and they'll go buy private businesses and they'll usually do that with some form of leverage. So, you know, the, the traditional leverage buyout LBO, that, that's a strategy that's still used now and it's be, being used uh, less now than uh, it was before that interest rates are a lot higher than they were before, right? So rates of return are going down because of that. But the idea is you go and you go buy an existing business, uh, say at a you know five times EBITDA multiple. And so if you business is producing a million dollars, you can go buy it for $5 million and you can buy that business with say 60% debt and 40% equity. So that equity goes and, you know, Buys the asset or buys the business, you know, two million dollars for that five million, and then you go and you buy another business, you buy a couple other businesses, you put some new management in, you do some new marketing. All of a sudden, you grow the EBITDA or the income, the net net income, to two million dollars. Well, all of a sudden, that business is now theoretically worth ten million dollars, and so now you have this kind of leveraged return that you got in addition. You're using the bank debt at you know the the three million dollars. Let's say it's you know, eight percent or something right now, and so the idea is you can you can create value. You can you know force appreciation is a word that we use a lot in the kind of private world, where you can increase the value of an asset or a business, and to the extent you have leverage on that or higher or lower leverage, you can increase your equity returns. And so that's a very very common strategy. Um, I will say it's you know. If you're going to go into that route, you definitely want to go into a fund that's going to be, you know, has a great track record, has you know a long time doing this, um, and there's a lot of different risks involved with that. But it is, you know, a lot of the data we've seen, it's it's usually a, a decent allocation. You know, life insurance companies probably not great for them because they're more focused on kind of current pay cash because they got to pay out their uh, the claims and you know the loans for their their cash value. But you know, one of the data sources we look at is Tiger Twenty One, like I mentioned, and Generally, they're they're going to have twenty five percent of their portfolios in private private equity. You know that's not anyone else should be doing that that high unless you got you know bigger numbers. But mm-hmm. that's usually what they're what they're investing in um, percentage wise. Yeah, they probably have multiple deals you're doing on, and even then it's twenty five percent because a lot of the times with the private equity, there's things called capital calls, right? They call you up and oh, yeah. say, "We're yep. we found this this uh, company. We need you to send in you know fifty grand to uh, help us go buy it." Or lockups where you put your money in today and it's you know locked up for five, seven, or or ten years. And a lot of times these investments are like you put you know a hundred thousand or two hundred two hundred fifty thousand in, and you just own a part of ten companies compared to mm-hmm. you put twenty five bucks into a place like Vanguard, you know, and you can get five hundred companies, right? So it's certainly uh, different, and that's interesting to see, especially the the billionaire side where twenty five percent allocations maybe um kind of the high level in the private I, equity but i think a lot, an area. a lot of it sorry go ahead and finish your thought there well it's clearly an area uh for for one to explore because uh it yeah you've, you've mentioned the diversification and that's what we've learned i think from you in these all these different areas is you, you explore them 
you look at the background, you do your due diligence, you keep an eye on the fees and the different terms that are maybe uh, different to you compared to mutual funds and stocks and stocks and bonds. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the kind of little point I'll make just as a comparison between the public and private markets, you know, one of the, the downsides again is a liquidity, but if you can, you know, manage some of that illiquidity, meaning you can't get your money back when you need it, like you can't just push the sell button on you know, TD Ameritrade. Um, you know, if you can manage that, then a lot of times you can potentially get above market returns. And, and one of the ways I look at this in a simple uh, framework is like in real estate, if you want to go and invest in, you know, some public REITs, public REITs are great. I think you should have some public REITs because of that liquidity. But if you look at, you know, one of the kind of key metrics for valuation wise for the REITs is price to book ratio, right? So this is the price that you're paying relative to the book value of assets in the REIT. And, you know, I need to look at more recent data, this was a few months ago, but on average, if you looked at, you know, the price to book ratio, it was usually three to five, sometimes six X, right? So at a, say a four X, every dollar of, uh, you invest in their, in their REIT, only 25% of that is actually assets, right? And so there's there's some some premium or there's some liquidity premium built into the REIT that you're paying for because you want the liquidity. But if you go into private real estate, generally your, your markup is not going to be as severe, right? You're going to have some fees, right? Because there are fees involved in private real estate. People got to make money that are involved in it. But it's generally going to be, if I go invest a dollar in you know one of these private real estate deals, probably... 90 to 95 cents of that dollar is going to go in, into the asset. So mm-hmm. that's just one kind of simple way to think about it when you think public versus private. I think the same thing exists in the kind of private equity world with businesses because one of the really common strategies is you go and buy these smaller businesses that say only produce a million dollars of income and you're going to pay a lot less per dollar of income, right? So a multiple is say three to four times but if you can buy enough businesses and you get the total income up to say $20 million, all of a sudden, because it's bigger and there's more capital looking for assets that are at that size, you can now sell that for a 10 times multiple, right? So not only do you expand you know, the multiple by just increasing the revenue or the income of the business, but you can also expand it by you know, going to different levels and tiers of what the market's willing to pay for. So valuation really comes into play here a lot. And that's a little more technical maybe, but for some of your listeners, they might appreciate that. I think that some of them might do it. And I tell you, it's a, if I can talk about price the book and multiple expansion, it's a good day for me. I'll, I'll, <laughs> <I like it. laughs> there you yeah. go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got uh, a couple more areas just to go through quickly that you've mentioned on your podcast. And one of them is just the idea. Of, it's not just about investing. Well, maybe part of it is this part of investing like a billionaire it's having the billionaire mindset. How would you describe the billionaire mindset and, and how can that help, I guess, us, us regular non-billionaires? Yeah, exactly. Well, I, th- I think one of the big things is just going back to what I said earlier, where so much of our time is focused on building our careers, right? I got to make more money. I've got to just get to that next level of income, next level of you know my stock market portfolio. But we're not thinking about how do we actually take what we have and maximize it, right? How do we actually think about our balance sheets and grow the balance sheets, not just the income statements, right? And that's more accounting talk, but the way I think about it and what I see is a lot of the billionaires are using 
the balance sheets to their advantage. And one of the main ways they do that is thinking about taxes, right? Taxes are an inevitability. We all know that, right? Death and taxes. But there are ways that you can defer taxes, not only through just the, the IRA contributions and other great vehicles you can invest in, but also if you invest directly into real estate or if you build an asset's value, you can actually do a cash out refinance. You can take your cash out that you put in and you have new debt on there. That's a non-tax event. You can go use that cash and go buy another asset. So there's um, you know, one of the one of the great things in real estate, especially, is you can defer taxes uh, for a long time and actually um, leverage the assets that you have to buy more assets um, that continue to pay you more income. And so it's there's a lot of technicalities here, but there's some cool tax code designations called the real estate professional status. If you have any interest in real estate at all, you definitely need to Google that because it's it's pretty crazy. I just did it for the first time last year, and I can't you know probably see what 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 happened for me personally, but it was pretty awesome, right? And paid a lot less taxes than I was planning on. So um, there's some some cool stuff that you can do from that standpoint. It's just understanding what's available to you legally within the tax code and and using that to your advantage is probably one of the biggest things. Yeah. And uh, there's a, uh, a a famous politician that used real estates and, and uses terms like legal a lot that I think uh, <laughs> knows all those uh, those different rules, but really those different rules about the billionaire mindset, a lot of it does have to do with taxes. Before I kind of have you go talk more about that, but I think a lot of it has to do where you might have heard of the time value of money, like you invest today and the, your money grows over time. But I think the billionaires really view the money value of time where they're they're learning, I saw another, um, a book called Who Not How, where the billionaires are figuring out who can make this happen for me, as opposed to how can I make this happen? Because they have only so much time and only so much expertise. So if they can go find an expert uh, that's out there and theoretically uh, in all these private markets, you can find uh, the experts that can help you out with that. But uh, to finish up on how billionaires pay less in taxes, I... Uh, I wrote down my own three notes. We'll see if I'm missing one, but really one piece of it is uh, the real estate where you've got the depreciation, which is a way to defer taxes to later on while you're still pulling an income in. Oftentimes people complain about how dare those billionaires pay less in taxes than their secretaries. But a lot of times the person who's uh, a worker has their money in the 401k and traditional IRAs where the rules gave them a tax break on their way in but when they take the money out, it's at an ordinary income. And if you're a billionaire, uh, it's hard to throw money into a Roth IRA. It's hard to, uh, <laughs> right. and even if you could, what's you know what's the limit uh, these days compared to the hundreds of millions? Uh, so a lot of times the billionaires are in the world of not ordinary income, but in the world of capital gains, where there's mm. is a, a, a different and oftentimes lower tax bracket for that. So kind of exploring the real estate and and finding out how depreciation works for you. Uh, exploring the world of capital gains and how that uh, works for you. And then, of course, the, the third one seems to be, uh, you mentioned the two pieces of it. Uh, you defer your taxes till later on. You pull some debt out from it. And then the uh, the secret is to die at some point in time because then you get those step up in, in basis. Those seem to be kind of the three ways that the, the billionaires go out there and, and invest in a way that pays less in taxes. Does that sound like a good summary? Or am I you you nailed it. Yeah, you, you need to come run my show now. You, you got it all. <laughs> But well, this is I an invitation. It's, it's, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's a great point. I mean, it's 
I get, I get the frustration, right? It feels like we're all out there working really hard. We're you know, trying to do our best. You know, I got four kids. I'm trying to feed all these, these kids. And, you know, then you have to pay a big tax bill, right? And my, my sister has moved to California from the Midwest mm-hmm. and was shocked with her bonus where, you know, she got way less than she expected. Oh, I believe and it. It's, it's just one of those things where it's frustrating, right? Because you feel like I'm working so hard for my money. I'm not getting it. And you see someone, you know, like people you're alluding to that are not paying that much. But my mindset is, well, let's use the tools that are kind of already there to our advantage, right? Let's use the resources we already have. If if the Roth is the best option for you, go and just do that, right? Start there, right? That's that's just a, an automatic. Mm-hmm. But there's other things too, right? If these people are doing it, those are the same, there's the same tax code applies to you as it does to them. So there's things that you can do that you can figure out to use it to your advantage, right? Instead of just being frustrated by it, actually go find ways to make it work for you too. Yeah, I like that. Just go out and research, find the ways that you can make what's already there uh, work for you. And of course, uh, you've got your podcast, uh, Invest Like a Billionaire, that can help you learn more. But I've got one more question for you, Ben. Uh, before that, tell us what's the best way to reach out to you? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, the best way, if you like listening to podcasts, we have ours, like Jeremy mentioned, called Invest Like a Billionaire on any platform. Um, and then, yeah, our, our website is aspenfunds.us, and you can kind of explore some of the things we've got going on in the private alternative space, and those are probably the best ways. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks, Ben. And uh, of course, if you'd like more ideas on how to make your retirement great, just go ahead, click that subscribe button. We'll be bringing you more stuff, uh, great guests like, like Ben to you as well. All right, Ben, I've got one final question. Tell us something about yourself that few people know about, and remember that this podcast is rated clean. <laughs> okay. Thanks for the reminder. Well, I kind of gave away, I have I have four four kids, but uh, the one little caveat to that, I have four girls. I have all girls. So I'm a girl dad to the max and I love it. So, uh, you know, that that's probably the, the main tidbit about me. My life is all about them and my wife. So that's it. That's awesome. I'm also a girl dad. I've got two, not four, uh, but I've learned you always uh, have one of the uh, the ponytail uh, bands in your, in your car at all times, because apparently that's a uh, that's a big deal. Absolutely. Word to the wise for future girl dads. You always got to have right. those around. That's awesome. <laughs> well, thanks, Ben. Thanks for coming on the show and teaching us all about how to invest like a billionaire. Awesome. Thanks, Jeremy. You got it. And thank you for listening to the Retirement Reveal Podcast. We believe if you know more about your money, you will feel better about your money and you will make better money decisions. This was another great episode of the Retirement Revealed Podcast. Click on the subscribe button below to automatically get our latest episodes. If you liked our show and want even more, please give us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. Please go to retirement-revealed.com to learn more and send us your questions and feedback. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Kyle Financial Partners, Thrivent, or its affiliates. The guests are not affiliated with or endorsed by Thrivent Advisor Network. Kyle Financial Partners does not provide legal accounting or tax advice. Consult your attorney or tax professional. Representatives have general knowledge of the Social Security tenants. For details on your situation, contact the Social Security Administration. Kyle Financial Partners is part of the Thrivent Advisor Network, a registered investment advisor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. 
Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have with your investment planning. Advisory persons of Thriven provide advisory services under a doing business as name or may have their own legal business entities. However, advisory services are engaged exclusively through Thrivent Advisor Network LLC, a registered investment advisor. Kyle Financial Partners and Thrivent Advisor Network LLC are not affiliated companies. Information in this message is for the intended recipients only. Please visit our website, www.kylefp.com, for important disclosures.